0: The political circus is gearing up for 2024. Meanwhile, Americans are suffering from the costs of the political elite. Join the Mises Institute at Fort Myers, Florida on November 4th for an event dedicated to the White House, the Fed, and the economy. We'll cut through the campaign rhetoric to look at the future of the U.S. economy with a lineup including Bob Murphy, Patrick Newman, Jonathan Newman, and Murray Sabrin. Register now at mises.org fl23. Human Action Podcast listeners can receive a special $10 discount using promo code FL2023. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here's your host, Dr. Bob Murphy.
1: Jonathan, welcome back to the Human Action Podcast. Hey, Bob. Thanks for having me. Well, folks, you are in for a treat today. We've got both theory and evidence. We have a one-two punch for you today. And we're going to call the people over at the Economic Policy Institute, EPI, a bunch of naughty boys and girls, <laughs> all right? Um, so let me just first tell you folks the backstory as to how we are here, um, and then... We'll dive into the details. So it's going to have a lot to do with labor compensation, alleged discrepancies between worker productivity and and compensation. So that's the big topic. But let me just explain why it is that we're here. So I had had uh, Oren Cass on my podcast over at the Bob Murphy show, and he was complaining about the fact that the, the pay for regular American middle class, you know, blue collar workers, hasn't kept up with productivity and something's wrong with american capitalism and we need changes. Da, 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 da. Okay, so obviously I didn't agree with Oren's proposed solutions necessarily, but I was looking at some of the data he had been presenting and I was surprised that it showed seemingly that there was this discrepancy and that real wages, defined in a certain way, uh had been quite lackluster and just the data were were worse than I thought they would look like. And so then I had Gene Epstein came on to my show to take me out to the woodshed and he was just going through and just telling me that no bob I can't believe you fell hook line and sinker for this stuff everybody in this space knows that these data sets you know some of them are very dubious and you shouldn't have used that you should have done this and da, da, da. and so he's going through and explaining that and in so in the process of that conversation gene and i alluded to this quite famous chart that was popularized by EPI the economic policy institute that's a well known left-leaning is what they would say, or actually they wouldn't say on NPR. They would just say institution. They only say they only use the term right-leaning. But they're, they're definitely progressive left-leaning. And you'll see it floating all over the internet, whatever, this chart showing labor compensation not keeping pace with labor productivity. And, uh, and the divergence originally, historically, in their own charts, showed it happening in the early 1970s. And so Gene and I were referring to that. And so then when I, you know, the episode was was done and I was giving instructions to uh, my team that you know, helps process these things and gets, gets the video ready for YouTube and such, um, I went to go grab the chart that I knew showed this discrepancy occurring specifically in 1973, like the lines match closely up until 1973 and then the labor output version or, or productivity, I should say to be more specific, kept rising upward, whereas apparently the real compensation for labor just kind of went flat, and so this growing discrepancy over time. And I went to just go grab that chart just to give to my video guy so he could, he could splice it in at the appropriate time. And lo and behold, the EPA EPI, uh, charts now were different, and they showed the discrepancy occurring in 1979. And the reason that was interesting, it kind of ruined my story, is because I had been saying all along that the EPI, if you read the papers and their commentary around this chart, would lead you to believe it had to do with Reaganomics, that, oh, yeah, there's irresponsible tax cuts for the rich and deregulation and blah, 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 and and, uh, weakening of union protection for workers in the 1980s It started this, you know, this uh, huge exploitation. So the the compensation that American workers had been getting in the 50s and the 60s and da, 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 and then, you know, clearly... From this point forward. And so my point had always been, well, that's nutty. Obviously, their own chart shows it happens, starts in 1973, not when Ronald Reagan comes in, certainly not the passage of the Kemp Roth tax cuts. And so how, how can you possibly be attributing it? I said a, a better explanation would be Nixon going off the gold standard. That's at least the timeline fits better. And so why don't we at this point, folks at home watching, show you the two charts side by side? Okay, you see that screenshot. So you'll see on the left again, that was the original EPI chart floating around for years, which clearly showed the divergence starting in the early 70s, specifically 1973. And then the one on the right claiming, oh, this huge discrepancy started in 1979. So you can see how the chart on the right, which is coming from the, the later paper that they put out, better fits their narrative as to what's causing this exploitation now of the American worker to be able to pin it on Republican supply side economic policies, as opposed to you know the inflation unleashed by Richard Nixon when he foolishly untied the feds hands. Okay. So we don't know what the motivation was, but all I can say is it wasn't just me saying that lots of people on the right started pointing to those, that API chart and saying instead of just trying to argue it away and Jonathan and I folks in a minute are going to get into all the, the problems with that chart and, some of the responses that people on the right have given as to why that that data are just meaningless and that doesn't mean anything at all, but other ones like me were sort of calling their bluff and saying, "Okay, sure, there is this discrepancy, but it's you know maybe due to the federal reserve and and so now they've they've sealed it up so I've been talking a lot, Jonathan, let me stop and and let you respond to this uh troubling situation where it looks like all of a sudden, no, the discrepancy that we've been saying for years happened in nineteen seventy three Upon further review, no, it happened in 1979. What's your take?
2: Oh, so I, I get to uh, deliver the punchline here, basically. Oh, I thought you were going to say you get to talk in this episode. I was going to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so what what they did uh, from the original chart to the updated one is they 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 basically em- employed an optical illusion. They did some data manipulation to make it look like the separation between productivity and compensation happened in uh, uh, right after 1979. Um, and, and the major change that they made between those two charts is, is they changed from showing a cumulative percent change in the data, or it's the same thing as indexing it to the start of the period in question, I think it's like 1949 or something like that. Um, and, but in the updated chart, they, they moved the base period for the index to 1979. And if you know if you know anything about the way indices are are created or how they're calculated, you you can make any two uh, data series meet together at the at the base period because they're indexed to that period. So the way an index is is put together is the the series is compared to itself, and to compare it to itself, you have to you have to figure out one common denominator. And in the case of an index or a time series, you, you would use one particular year, one particular observation from that time series as the common denominator. And so what they did is they turned 1979 into that common denominator, which means that both indices equal 100 for that for that time period. And so it was really sort of like a tricky thing that they did to make it look like the, the data series come together or they stay together up until that time period. And then they start separating for the eighties and during uh, Reagan's administration. Of course, we will not, we we're not exactly sure what their motivations were, but it does, it does seem to look like they were trying to make them meet all the way up until 1979 and then allow the series to separate afterwards.
1: Yes. So just visually folks, let's do it in different stages because Jonathan has done it precisely with their data, but just to make sure you're, you're, tracking the general claim that we're making here. We'll go ahead and flash the two up again, the two again. So the one you're seeing on the left is the historical paper that EPI had been putting out for a long time. And then the one on the right is, this is from a paper that came out in 2022. I don't know if like the 2021 version has this new chart or not, but the the one I found when I went to Google just to grab it and it shocked me because wait a minute, that's not what I remember their chart showing uh, is from 2022. And so you see those two things. And so again, notice... Those, those dotted vertical lines on the left-hand chart that's coming in 1973, and you can see with the commentary, with the statistics above, they're trying to show, oh, regime one is from 1948 to 1973, and then regime two is from 1973 uh, to the present, as of when that, that paper came out. And then on the right, similar setup, except now they're making this important dividing line separating the old ways from the new, is it 1979. And as Jonathan's saying, visually, when you just look at that one on the right, it does look like, oh, yeah, they're basically around the same up until 79. And then the the dark blue line just starts marching upward. But notice the trick. And so here, I'll, I'll just point it. You can see it visually. And then I said, I'll turn back to Jonathan and he can tell you the specific numbers and what he did just to make sure that, you know, we aren't fooling ourselves here. But notice on the one on the left, the two, the dark blue and the light blue lines hug each other from the start date, which is 1948, up until 1972, right? That they're, they're, they're kind of like two snakes embracing going from the, you know the start point up to then. And then from 73 onward is when you see the dark blue line keeps marching upward, whereas the pale blue one kind of goes flat. So clearly, okay, that's what they mean there about. There's a separation there. Now look at the right, where again, by construction, the, the dark blue and the light blue have to intersect it 1979 because that's where they've chosen to make the index equal 100 okay whereas in contrast on the left-hand side they're labeling it as cumulative change since 1948 but that's the same thing as saying we set the index you know to be 100 in both series in 1978 or sorry uh 1948 and then let, let it rip and we just then showed you the, the changes from from uh, 100 so on the right again they've set it to 96 so it has to be there and now you know that the divergence actually happened earlier and again it's very misleading because if you just look a couple years to the left from that vertical line the dark blue and the and the pale blue are basically laid on top of each other so yes if you read their commentary and we're just flipping through this you would look at that chart and think you saw oh yeah the two series tracked each other quite well up until 1979, and then that's when the split happened. Hmm. But look more closely, and again, compare the left chart to the right one, and you can see that the differences on the left remember the dark blue and the pale blue sort of alternated. They were so close together that, you know, for a couple years one was a little bit below, and then it flipped, and then it flipped back. Whereas on the right hand chart, look more carefully, you'll see the dark blue for the whole period from 1948 up until 72, the dark blue is below and the pale blue is clearly above for just about that whole stretch. And then it's only in the early seventies where they overlap each other. And then in 1979, they're equal again by construction and then the blue dark blue line goes ahead. And so that's why you couldn't tell, no, actually the change happened before that vertical line, because again, from 48 up until let's say 1969, you can see the dark blue is clearly below so the stretch there visually where they're actually overlapping shows a change already occurred that the dark blue line actually was rising more rapidly than the pale blue one before that vertical line because that's why instead of the dark blue line always being below now they start overlapping okay but you wouldn't you know so and, and finally one last thing I'll say on this just to see it visually folks look at that right hand chart just imagine taking the dark blue line and just sliding it upward a little bit so that the dark blue and the pale blue overlap in the first part of the series, like from 1948 to 1970. Again, just imagine taking that dark blue line and just sliding it upwards a little bit. And then notice if you did that, that chart would look pretty much identical to the one on the left. And so that should be a clue that, wait a minute, that it's not that the underlying data have changed drastically and turned out, oh, no, we made a mistake. The trend that we thought started in 73 is actually, no, mostly what's happening here is they just, like Jonathan said, re-indexed it. And that's causing this almost optical illusion, okay? And which, again, you can just kind of eyeball it and see if you just slid that dark blue line up, it would look like the left. But don't take my word for it, Jonathan. Turn the mic back over to you. Um, you actually went and, and did what I'm suggesting just to make sure that it really would turn out like that.
2: Yeah. So I, thankfully um, EPI publishes the data. So you can go to their website and you can download the data that they use to construct this chart and other ones that they do. And so I, I took their data. So it's the data that they, the exact same data that they use to to make uh, this chart. And what I did was I, I simply uh, made a graph that that depicts both of these series in the same way that they that they used to do it with the cumulative percent change, and and what I notice is you get you get the exact same uh, result. So like, are visually you get the separation happening in the early seventies as opposed to the eighties, and and so what that shows is they it, they made a conscious choice to change the way they presented the data by moving away from the cumulative percent change to indexing it and choosing the the base period, which by the way, it is an arbitrary choice as to like where you pick the the base year. Although some, some choices are going to be more intuitive than others, uh, or at least more compelling than others, depending on, on what question you're trying to answer. But for this one, it would, it would make most sense to choose the beginning period, 1948 as the, as the base period. So if you just take the same data and, and present it in the, in the way that they used to, then you get a chart, that shows the separation happening in the early seventies. So and why don't
1: we go ahead, We'll, we'll flash that right now, folks. So sure. that, as we're seeing, and we'll put the left, the original left-hand chart from EPI. And now the new right-hand chart that you're seeing is the one Jonathan created by taking the data from the 2022 paper from EPI and just changing, like I said, like the, like, like the way he's presenting it instead of having setting a bit, an index base year at 79, now he's there's two ways of saying the same thing. Setting it at, at nineteen forty eight, or alternatively, just showing the cumulative percent change. the The numbers on the y axis would be different, but the, the picture would be the same either way. If you want to think about it, and so you can see qualitatively those are the you know the same basic chart. It's telling the same story,
2: right? And and uh, like I, like I was saying before, all, all I did was I just took the data that, that they have or that they had to, to to make this chart, the updated one, and and just presented it in the the old way um and so, so uh, clearly this is this was a choice by somebody so somebody decided to to change it to an index presentation and and choose when to set the base period and by the, by the way earlier when i said that the choice of the base period is arbitrary i i, I tried to to clarify that a little bit but you I were a good economist sure. you said one thing and then said but on the other hand yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so i just want to make sure everybody understands it's it's not like both ways of presenting the data are okay, because the choice of the base year is arbitrary. It, it definitely makes much more sense to to choose the start of this time series as the base period. So choose 1948. And, and, and that way you can see the trajectory of both of these series over time. It, what you do if you, if you choose a period in the middle uh, as the base period, then you're like Bob said, you're by construction making it. So those series will meet at that particular point where, where if you're just trying to look at the long run trajectory of these things, it makes sense to to put it at the beginning of the period, because then your eyeballs, as you're moving from left to right, you're seeing the, the relative change in the series across time from, from where they based, based on where they start.
1: Yeah. And so thank you for saying that. And I want to clarify, because when I posted this originally on Twitter, a few days ago, um, some people were confused and they thought I was, they were saying, wait a minute, but if it's the same data, Bob, how can changing the, they thought I was saying, oh yeah, if you pick the index at 1979, then all of a sudden the gap between worker pay and productivity does start in 1979. Whereas if you pick it at 1948, then if you index there, then you can see more clearly that the gap truly starts in the 73. And no, that's not what I'm saying. That even looking at their right-hand chart, as, as I just pointed out to you folks you know, five minutes ago or whenever I said it in, in this real time, in this episode, I was showing you how, if you know what to look for, you can actually see, Oh, wait a minute. Those two series were not tracking perfectly from 48 to 1978 because the one was consistently below for a long time. And then in the early seventies, they started overlapping. So that was the the clue that there was a change in the, you know, the percentage rate of each series increase earlier that you know they since the one had started below and stayed below but yet you know hugged it that was showing there was a you know a, a, a constant appreciation in both series but then because the lower one then overtook and started overlapping the one that historically had been above it the whole time that meant actually the the lower number or line was now growing faster but visually because they started they were kind of squished together and were close And then overtook each other. If someone, and plus, if the headline is telling you, "Oh yeah, these basically tracked well up until 1979," just looking at it, it's not going to jump out at you that that's not true. So again, it's they can't change when the divergence happened just by changing the index year, but a chart can be misleading. So definitely, when so when people say how to lie with statistics, it's not that oh, sometimes math is wrong. That's not what people mean. But what they mean, though, is you can sometimes present information in a certain way that's technically not false, but is very misleading. And so that's what that second chart is. It's not not false. It's not that they lied about the data. They didn't manufacture numbers, but they chose to present it in a way that is extremely misleading. And let me just give another example of just how naughty these people have been i don't know what other word to use is so folks again we're going to you know bring up the two the original epi chart so notice they give statistics so they have you know regime a and regime b in this first paper they were saying regime a is from 1948 to 1973 and so they again they're trying to show how these series track each other so at that point they say productivity went up cumulatively 96.7 percent whereas hourly compensation went up 91.3%. So they're trying to show how those things tracked pretty well. Then in regime B, they say productivity went up 72.2%, whereas hourly compensation only went up 9.2%. Just to make sure you guys understand the flow of the argument, they're trying to show the cumulative change of that long stretch from 48 to 73 was pretty close. Whereas from 73 to 2014, the change wasn't even in the same ballpark. Clearly, productivity went way up, whereas compensation lagged. Now, fast forward to the 2022 paper, which ends with 2021 data. You see they use the same approach. You know, they got their chart there and they show the statistics. And from 48 to 79 now, because they're trying to say that's regime A, they've got productivity rising accumulative 118.4% and compensation rising 107.5%. All right now, I'll stop there because B is different because now they they, have, they go further in time, but the 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 tightness of the fit in regime B is still much looser. So it looks like oh statistically it's the same thing, Bob. You know haven't they really shown the gap now for some reason in twenty twenty two? Apparently, with the most recent data, the gap begins in seventy nine. Don't those st- no? Because look, it I'm using their own statistics originally from. 48 to 73 again they said the productivity went up 96.7 percent compensation was 91.3 percent so if you divide those two the ratio is 1.06 right in other words productivity rose six percent more than compensation so pretty not identical but pretty close only a six percent gap but then in the new paper for their regime a which is supposed to show the tightness of the fit they've got productivity going 118.4% and compensation rose 107.5%. So there, the ratio had risen to 1.1, 1. 1, right? So a 10% gap. So even using their own papers side by side, you can see that by moving the goalpost from 73 to 79, the tightness of the fit, the, the compen- or sorry, productivity in the first time when you set the bar at 73, compensation was only 6% behind productivity. When you move the bar to 79 using their own numbers, now productivity outpaced compensation by 10%. Okay, so again, you, using the, so that's just showing if you just move that bar back, it would make the, the fit better between productivity and compensation. So clearly, if, if what they're trying to show is historically there was a period where they moved together quite well and then they started diverging using their own statistics, even, you know, we showed it visually with the charts, just using their numbers. Now I'm showing that, yeah, if you keep the thing at 73, the gap is only 6%. If you move the bar over to 79, the gap grows to 10%. So clearly the divergence started earlier using their own numbers. Um, you know, Jonathan, I know that you, maybe to try to hammer home the point, we can switch away from this. And I know, I know you were playing with some uh, fanciful examples of other data sets where it might be more intuitive to people, how they would track and then diverge at some point.
2: Yeah. So I, I just looked at some other data series uh, and I just sort of played around because I was trying to think about a um, an analogy to to present or explain what EPI has done with this data. And with, with all of the data series that I've found, we don't have to inundate um, the viewers uh, with more graphs and the listeners with more descriptions of graphs. Uh, but just, I'll, I'll say that with, with the data series that I found, like I looked at uh, Walmart stock price and Amazon stock price, by deciding where you place the base period for the index, um, if you index both of those series, you can make it look like they separate at a totally different time period than when they do if you just look at the the nominal prices or if you set the index at the beginning of the period. and I also I came up with an example of a library uh, that gets started in the eighties and so if you if you track the the number of books that they have, and the number of bookcases that they have, then of course those would those would have a pretty tight correlation. But then I thought, okay, well, what if like in the mid nineties eBooks come on the scene? And so the library uh, makes those available to their patrons. And, and what that would mean is the total number of books would grow, but the number of bookcases would increase by uh, like the same rate that the physical books would increase. And I, I, I just sort of made this sort of fictional example to show that you can you can use any data series and and do this same sort of trick that API has done where you can manipulate the the presentation of the data not just manipulate the data but manipulate the presentation of the data to to make it look like the separation happens at a different time period than than it actually does now I, I I am in uh Auburn Alabama right now and I can hear Gene Epstein yelling at us right now. So so what <laughs> so what what is he? Well, you're hang you're, on let me let me do my trademark though Jonathan to do my thing like let's make sure we're
1: not leaving the listener cuz you your example was so clever. I want to shine a spotlight on it. So folks, what I had done with Jonathan because again, on Twitter people they weren't my enemies. They were well, I mean maybe they were, but people were just genuinely not understanding the point I was making when I was saying, look at what EPI did. And, again, they were saying things like well, no, How, why would changing the index years the same numbers? Right? And um, by the way, before I forget, Jonathan, you said technically the numbers did change a little bit, right? Yeah. So it's not that they merely changed the index year. So Apparently, the BEA or BLS or somebody revised the underlying data set. But as we've shown, and, and you showed Greb in their 2022 numbers, the main reason for that change was because they moved the index year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Just to make sure that we're, we're not saying that's, that was the only change, but- So in fairness, maybe the reason I haven't said the author of the article is because maybe that person was just given marching orders and didn't know why. Like, I, you know, we don't know. And again, they could have honestly believed, well, no, they revised the data sets and then maybe said somebody, you know, maybe an editor or somebody said, what if you uh, change the index year to 1979? Let's see what happened. You know, who knows? (laughs) I don't know how much that person knew of the prior history, but institutionally I smell a rat, put it that way. (laughs) Um, but anyway, uh, and so then I was gonna I was gonna go just go do it in Excel and just do a you know say okay well if we have one data series that's growing and then I'll make the other one like literally take that and do times 0.2 or something and so you know proportionally they always grow the same right if one data set is always just twenty percent the other one and then maybe at some year I'll have it, it be point four or something or, or 0.4 times the time period so now it's growing. Uh, at a faster rate based on the passage of time. So before they would attract perfectly in terms of an index, and even though one was always higher, but like percentage-wise. And then from that point forward, they really start diverging. And then I'll show if I put the you know the index period marker at the first, you know, at the beginning, it looks one way and you can clearly see visually the divergence happens when we know it did. And then if I move the marker, it might hide it a little bit. And even though it's technically, you could still tell it might be missing. And so I was saying to Jonathan, can you just come up with an exa- a real-world example that might have those properties? And he had it – was, it was beautiful. He was saying, again, just to repeat it to make sure you appreciate it. You econ professors out there, maybe you want to use this in your class to say, what if you're tra- tracking physical bookshelf space or, or the number of bookshelves that a, a bookstore has with the number of titles of, of the books they carry? And so back in the day when all books they carried were physical – those measures would track each other pretty closely. They wouldn't be perfect, right? Because maybe some years there's a lot of, you know, maybe when the Harry Potter books come out, they happen to be real thick on average compared to other stuff. And so, you know, it's
2: possible that... Or or some thick Austrian tomes, right? Exactly, right. 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 Or then,
1: you know, all the times Paul Krugman was right would be very tiny and, you know, that (laughs) would throw things off. So, you know, there'd be, be, be discrepancies, but in the aggregate, come on, year after year, you would expect to be a pretty tight correlation in the percentage growth of bookshelves and number of books carried by booksellers. But then you could imagine a sharp break in the series, as Jonathan says, once ebooks become a thing, and as they grow in popularity, the, the discrepancy would would get bigger and bigger, right? It wouldn't just be a one-shot adjustment. It would be a you know growing thing over time as more and more of the market every year was overtaken by ebooks. And so again, so you would see chart, you know, the, the number of books carried would start rising much faster than number of bookshelves or bookshelf space or whatever, however they are measuring the other physical thing. And so Jonathan, you know, was just making up number. He didn't go and get those actual data, but he just made up some series and then showed, yep, even though eyeballing, if you set the index at the start, you can clearly see the divergence happens when we, you know, put into the spreadsheet by formula when we know what happened. But if you then change the index year, it can kind of mask that. So again, it's, mm-hmm. it's still there. Like if you're just multiplying numbers or dividing by a different thing, it's, you're not making the information disappear, but you can kind of hide it visually. And so, you know, that was the example he came up with. Okay, so I just wanted to give you credit there, Jonathan. That was an amazing example you came up with. But now let's move on to a more substantive thing. As you say, there's a certain Gene Epstein who <laughs> is going to think that we're sort of spending a half an hour quibbling over something when really we're missing the big story. So what does Gene say the, the, the important point in all of this is?
2: So I, I had a, a similar story uh, that, that you did that you talked about at the beginning of the episode, where I, I just sort of took the the data for granted. I, I, didn't, I didn't do any digging. Um, but one year, uh, I think it was in 2020 or 2021, uh, Gene Epstein came to Mises U, and he gave this talk. Um, it's called uh, the dirty data of uh, the labor share declining labor share myth or something like that we'll we'll provide a link to it in the, in the notes page but uh what i mean he very convincingly very it's very compelling what he showed is that uh th- those two series are they are inflation adjusted but they're inflation adjusted with two different uh, measures of the price level and and what what he found is that if you if you try to undo that, so if you undo the inflation adjustment, which it, which by the way is a, a valid thing to do, that's legitimate to, to do that, since it's a, you're comparing one time series to another time series, you can compare just the nominal values, and, and it makes sense. Uh, and what he showed is that you can you can totally annihilate the separation, all of the separation uh, that happens when you do that. So if you compare the the nominal productivity series to the nominal uh, compensation series. In the way that Gene did it, then the the both of the series line up uh, very closely to to each other, and 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 he he talked about that as well in in the episode that you referred to in the Bob Murphy Show, where he took you out to the woodshed. So so uh, we we can talk a little bit about uh, Gene's uh, methods there. And uh, are, are you convinced yet? Well, I certainly
1: think it's it's very it's a very important point. So people, maybe we should stop for a moment and just explain to people what these series are actually tracking. Cause to throw around terms like sure. l- output and, or, or sorry, product, usually the way it's billed is productivity and compensation. Okay. So interrupt me, Jonathan, if I'm, if I'm saying something wrong, but the product, what they mean by productivity measure is they are taking uh, GDP, like total, like total output, and then dividing it by
2: an estimate of total worker hours in that period. That's right. right? Well, they, they they subtract some things from GDP, but you're right. The the basis for the productivity measure, they start with GDP, and then they subtract out government stuff and and, and a couple other things, and and that gives them a measure of like worker productivity. So it's like output per hour per worker. Okay. Um. And and then
1: the, with that, and, and then like you say, they they might they want to inflation adjust it, so because all this the GDP is itself measured in money terms. And so, you know, they inflation adjust it in some way, and we'll come back to that. You know, what, what does that mean? And then, yeah, the compensation figure, you know, they have measures of compensation work. And sometimes in some of the different charts, you can see it's like a a, a subset of workers. And that's one thing that Gene really got upset about is this particular measure called non-supervisory
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, worker. I forget what the other, there's another thing in there. Do you remember? Um. Shoot. It's non-supervisory and something else, but trying to say like not managers, you know, we're not, not, not the CEO is getting stock options. Like it's trying to get like, you know, blue collar salt of the earth people, um, production workers, right. Production and non-supervisory. I I think think that's that's what the term is. And so Gene has particular ire for that series. Okay. So that's, but forget that for the moment, just in general, coming up with labor compensation, they're saying, yeah, if we come up with a measure of workers—not just wages, but you know, benefits and things like that, broadly construed, health insurance and such—then take that and divide that by an estimate of total labor hours worked in that period, and then that gives you a, a, a measure of, um, you know, the average hourly total compensation. And then again, you're supposed to inflation adjust that somehow. And then those are the two things where they track quite well up until the early 70s. And then the one, the productivity measure starts rising, you know, continues to rise rapidly, whereas the compensation one f- flatlines. And so um, maybe I'll just make one point is the, at this at this stage, the, a sort of theoretical point, the way that EPI was using that and like labor activists and, you know, people like politicians who want to fight for 15 or now, I don't even know what the, how much they're asking for, meaning dollars per hour and minimum wage. Um, what they uh, they'll point to that as you know to, to suggest or they'll openly say, "Look at workers are making more stuff, their productivity is rising, and yet they're they're not sharing in the gains of what they themselves are producing." So that's clearly the the implication of this. And then typically guys like Gene Epstein and uh, Jeremy is it Harpedal. I hope I'm saying his name right.
2: No, I'm not um, sure. Dolphin. Um, all-
1: yeah. Uh, yeah various people like that and working for Cato and other libertarian uh, institutions ha- have tried to debunk that. And, and it seems like they're both arguing over is labor being paid its marginal product, right? And then I've seen Gene um, argue things like to say, well, wait a minute. If this, if this gap keeps getting bigger and bigger at some point, how confirms." like in other words, the way the EPA, EPI narrative goes, it's almost like, oh, workers now are making a hundred dollars worth of stuff an hour, but they're still only being paid $20 an hour in real terms. So it's like, as, that, as those numbers keep getting bigger and bigger, how come some firm isn't coming along and hiring all the workers at $21 an hour and making, you know, that a little bit smaller of the gap, but now times all the worker like that's so clearly something's screwy with the EPI narrative. But my modest point is. There's no reason theoretically that those lines couldn't diverge. Okay. In other words, it's because really when you unpack it, it's basically just showing real output compared to labor's compensation. And obviously, labor compensation is not 100% of real output, that there's also what flows to natural resources and also capital goods and in terms of the breakdown. And so, just to give two quick, you know, fanciful examples, If you had a a small country that was chugging along and then all of a sudden people discovered all sorts of diamond mines and coal deposits and oil fields and – did I say gold already? (laughs) Maybe, right? You saw all this stuff and they just started exporting that like crazy, but it didn't take a lot of workers to extract it. Well, real GDP for that little country would go way up but there's no reason that you'd expect labor compensation to rise. It would be the, the landowners who happened to be sitting on that land where all those natural resources were discovered. They would be the ones whose income would rise in the, in that in the national accounts that wouldn't show up as, you know, a full reflection in how much labor compensation rose and, it, and it, you, why would it right? That it would flow the resource owners, mm-hmm. right? So that's again, an exaggerated example. I'm just trying to show there's no reason theoretically that those lines have to, to track and if they diverged, it wouldn't necessarily mean that labor was getting ripped off, right. or another even more fanciful example, like going forward, if there's growing robot armies of of you know A- ai powered uh robots that you know go into the factories and produce perform tasks that workers did you know you you could imagine scenarios that if you refine it, especially if what the robots were doing was really just replacing the human workers right if they weren't augmenting what the other workers did if you really narrowly define the thought experiment you could imagine a scenario where labor share of output went down and the people who owned all these growing robot armies were the ones that got the gains and it wouldn't be because you know it wouldn't be oh every hour i put in at my factory i get a billion dollars an hour it would just be more like no your your dividend checks or something or your royalties or however they classify it right because it'd be a return to capital OK, so again, in the real I'm not saying that's what's going on in these data sets, but I'm just saying I want to make sure people realize the even if the numbers were correct and those charts were true, that wouldn't show that, oh, it turned out neoclassical economics and, Mar- and Austrians, for that matter, are wrong and labor doesn't get paid as marginal product. that that's not what's at stake here.
2: Right, so. There's plenty of explanations that that we could throw out where these these lines would separate, and it doesn't necessarily indicate exploitation. Uh, what I was what I was uh, getting at before with uh, Gene Epstein, because I still hear him yelling at us all, <laughs> all the way over here, is that he so like he he is he totally rejects the not not just the way that EPI presents the data, but he he rejects the the way that the underlying data that is used to make this presentation is put together. Like you said, there's, there's this whole question about the categorization of workers. Um, But the very, the most interesting thing that I've seen from him, or at least in that presentation is, is where he tried to unwind the inflation adjustment. And and so I I did a little digging myself and I, I found that in the way that they're constructing this productivity uh, series, they they are doing some inflation adjustment, but it's not with one particular price index. What they do is they 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 get estimates on a sector by sector basis. And then when they're pulling those the nominal output from those sectors, they deflate it by a price index that applies to that sector. So they say, okay, what what price index can we use that applies to this sector? And, and then they do the deflation. And then they compile all of those sector-specific inflation-adjusted output figures, and then they make one aggregate, and they call it output per hour per worker. Or in the EPI uh, graphs, they just call it productivity. And, and so what uh, Gene Epstein has done is he he showed that if you deflate the compensation series by CPI, and you deflate the, um, the output or the productivity series by, um, we'll call it the GDP price deflator, even though it 's a bunch of sector specific uh, price deflators what you 're doing is now you 're comparing apples and oranges because you, you've you 've got two inflation adjusted series, but they 're adjusted by two different measures of inflation you 're using CPI for one and a different producer price indices uh, for the other one and so what he did was was he used the GDP implicit price deflator in the CPI and he unwound the inflation adjustment and that 's how he was able to show these two series actually match up pretty well. And, and so yeah, why don't we, we'll go ahead and flash um,
1: the image right now. So this folks is taken from the slot, the PowerPoint slides that Gene used at his Mises U presentation. So again, what Jonathan's saying is Gene said, Hey, what I did is I went and just got the nominal numbers. I took, you know, what's being reported using the government's own statistic as real uh, labor productivity, meaning inflation adjusted. And I, corrected it by taking out the GDP deflator to make it back into nominal. And then for what they're calling real labor compensation, which, which I know they deflate, they adjusted by CPI, I just undid the CPI to turn that nominal. And lo and behold, look it, it's basically two lines that are just hugging each other the whole time. So the whole description, this is all statistical smoke and mirrors, Gene Epstein claims, and we should stop trying to say, well, maybe it's the Federal Reserve. No, it's nothing. There's nothing to explain all they did was they divided one series by one index and another by a different index. And the one index, and what happened, just in case you're wondering where the discrepancy, because those two indices track each other pretty well. But then in the high price inflation, consumer price inflation, I should be clear, in the, that was unleashed in the 70s, which may be due to the Federal Reserve. I don't think Gene would have a problem with that. That's So really, all this is showing is CPI started growing more rapidly mm-hmm. than the GDP deflator starting in the early 70s. That's really the only information we have here. And so, yeah, if you take two things that are pretty much identical and divide one by one series and one by another, when the series diverge, when the indices diverge, they, they, you know, so that's Gene's point. So, okay, what else would you like to say on that, John?
2: Sure. So, I, I just wanted to say that uh, Gene is not necessarily a voice crying out in the wilderness on this point. So, I, I when I was you know, snooping around for uh, this episode, I found an old uh, Fred blog. So the St. Louis <laughs> Fed, the one that, I'm trying uh, to
1: resist the temptation to say you're right, Gene is not, you know, announcing the coming of Christ. It's definitely not what's going on. <laughs> yeah,
2: so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's, that's very true. Um, so I, I went to the St. Louis Fed website where, where they have a blog, and and they do the the, the same or they discuss the same issue where. If you look at the productivity and compensation data in the way that EPI has it, uh, they they don't cite EPI, but it's it's a very it's a famous uh, graph, and so mm-hmm. and so they're just referring to it generally. But they showed that if if you look at it that way, based on using CPI as the deflator for the compensation, then it it does exaggerate the separation that happens. It's, it does make it look like there's a much wider spread. And what they showed is that if you change uh, the the price index that you use to deflate compensation, you can, you can get those series to come closer to each other. Now, what's interesting is they don't get a graph that looks exactly like genes uh, uh, because they're not doing the exact same thing, but they, they do get rid of a lot of the spread that happens after the 70s by doing that. So, so somewhere in the middle of all of this is the, is the truth, but what's definitely not the truth is that the separation happens in 1979, which we established in the, in the first half of the episode. Yeah. So why don't we,
1: I think folks, this is, don't worry, this is the last one we'll flash for you, but here, we'll put that up there and you can see, so this is coming from Fred and this blog post was March 23, 2023. So, you know, this is very topical. And again, what they're showing here, that red line is the real uh, productivity, you know, output per hour of labor and, or an index of that, I should say. And then, The blue line there in that image is if you take labor compensation and adjust it by the CPI. And so you can see there's that big discrepancy. And then the green line, which kind of cuts it in half, is what happens if you take the measure of labor compensation and adjust it not by CPI, but by the GDP deflator. And so uh, roughly speaking, Jonathan, is it fair to say the way that the people at FRED tried to say oh depending on which deflator you use or index you use you could get rid of up to half of the discrepancy
2: Is that- yeah yeah so and they just sort of talk through like why why you might choose one deflator over another and they said it just depends on what you're trying to highlight so if you're trying to show things from the employer's perspective or from the consumer's perspective the worker's perspective you would choose a different deflator so they they obviously they don't come to like the same conclusions that we would or the gene does but they're just saying hey you've got a bunch of different options of of what price index you can use to deflate these figures. And let me
1: say something and you tell me, Jonathan, that this is correct. Um, so to, to be clear, folks, I think what's going on here is that when like you might say, well, wait a minute, how come when Gene did it, they matched perfectly? And now you're saying you might think that those are different things going on. I think what happened is Gene was saying, let me you take their labor compensation. I'll undo the C. You know, pull the CPI out. Like in other words, if I know that they originally had a nominal series and then they adjusted it by CPI to make it inflation adjusted, it's easy enough to do the opposite of that to get back to the nominal. So I think we all agree he did that and that's fine. But then when he took the government's measures of inflation adjusted real output or productivity, um, you know, output per worker hour and then said, I want to undo that and go to the nominal series. He took out the GDP deflator. He assumed that what they had done was take the original nominal series and adjust it by the GDP deflator. And so he just did the opposite. But strictly speaking, if I understand what you're saying, when you did poked around, you found what they're actually doing when they're taking the nominal figures of output or productivity and trying to make it inflation adjusted. It's a more sophisticated or let's say more complicated, um, procedure. They're not just adjusting it by the GDP deflator. They're kind of looking at a more sectoral specific with different weights and how much did the PPI go up in that one sector and blah, blah, blah. So uh, that's kind of explaining why. In other words, if they had if the government numbers did exactly what Gene thought they did, then his result should be literally identical to the green line in, in that Fred chart, but it's not. And so I, I think I'm am I explaining partly why the charts are different because technically they did separate things.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's right. I think it's just, it's just because the, the way that they do the inflation adjustment originally. So the way, the way anybody receives the data is after they've done that inflation adjustment based on those sector specific price indices. And and by the way, I'm I'm not totally solid on this because that's, that's just based on a brief reading of their methods handbook, which isn't very, uh, well, look, Gene uh, spent 90 me. minutes criticizing me on my own show, so I'm fine. Just as long as your
1: best <laughs> guess is he may have done something that wasn't exactly what they did, that's fine. Uh, that's all. I, that's good <laughs> enough for me. A preponderance wait, wait, wait. of the
2: evidence. I think the discrepancy <laughs> is based on just those, okay. those two different methods of inflation. Yeah.
1: And, and by the way, folks, joking aside, we're not saying Gene did something wrong. It's that I think he had what, what he had to work with, right? Like you have they're, – they're just publishing – the inflation adjusted series so you got to undo it and so the gdp deflator you know is the natural thing to use mm-hmm. um so we're just saying though that the reason that st louis fed thing is a little bit we're not a little bit different it's the Gene's way gets rid of the 100% of the discrepancy there's nothing there the st louis fed's way to say oh if we adjust labor by the um gdp deflator then half the discrepancy goes away so There you go. So that's that. Let me just last thing here in this episode I want to round up is um, the way Gene talks about it, though, is he's saying, oh, they're cooking it with two different sets of books. And this, as Jonathan said, the St. Louis Fed's blog post was being more um, charitable to, to the different approaches. Like, in other words, Gene is saying it's clearly wrong. Why in the world would you look at two nominal series and adjust one by one? price index in another series by a different one and then compare those two. That's crazy that, you know, that would be like looking at one thing in kilograms and something else in pounds and wondering why there's a divergence. This is nutty. Whereas the St. Louis feds blog post was saying, well, it depends what the point is. What, what, why are you adjusting And that? Actually it's interesting that dovetailed. And I'll be real quick here, folks um, looking at the clock, but years ago I wrote up a little model To try to theoretically show how the central bank could be driving this discrepancy so we don't know in practice if this is what's going on but i just wanted to show theoretically it could be something like this where imagine a little world where you know you've got workers and they go into the factories and the farms and so forth and they make their stuff and let's assume they're all getting paid their marginal product right there's a competitive labor market the employer looks ahead to see how much am i going to sell their output for i'll give them the discounted marginal product in terms of their wages today for that Workers are not being exploited. They're being paid their margin for But at the same time, the central bank every period, let's say doubles the stock of money and gives the addition to the small group of people over here who don't work. And now the workers and this group of people who benefit from the central bank's inflation go into the marketplace to buy goods and services every period. And the money that's held by the people who are buddies with the central bank is just as legal tender is the workers who got paid their wages in the same money. So it's all fungible, so you know the merchants aren't going to distinguish there. So I'm saying it's you could imagine in an equilibrium in that sort of framework where what happens is the worker who's like making machine parts, yes, his pay, you know, it keeps going up every period, right? Cuz the stock of money keeps doubling every period. So clearly prices are rising, wages are rising, and if he's getting paid his marginal product, yep. What his employer can sell his stuff for, um, you know, he's getting paid that in his wages. But then when he gets his wages and goes into the marketplace to buy apples and bread and you know rent a car, rent an apartment, or buy a car, even he finds that his wages are not keeping pace with the narrowly circumscribed you know basket of consumer goods that he cares about as, an, as a consumer. It's not just a broad price index. So you can imagine if there's cantillon effects and that you know prices rise sequentially and blah blah blah. you can imagine scenarios where the workers even though they're being paid their marginal product because in a sense they have to share some of the real output in consumer goods and services with this other group of parasites who aren't working but are still are consuming the only way the math can work out is if you know the workers feel like there's a sense in which they're getting left behind that wow it seems like over time especially if the inflation you know, got got to be a bigger share of output or something that the workers who are actually making everything get to consume a lower fraction of output over time. Right. So you can theoretically imagine a scenario like that. And so I'm just saying in a world like that, it wouldn't be nuts to say, how do we measure the impact of this printing press on the workers? And to someone say, well, you know, the worker who makes a bunch of machine parts, isn't gonna take his paycheck and go into the hardware store and spend all of his money buying back the products he just made. No, he's gonna take his pay and spend it on a mix of goods. And so it's not crazy to say, let's take workers' nominal wages and adjust it by a price index of consumer goods that the workers care about. That's not a nutty thing to do. And you can imagine scenarios where the fact that CPI increases more than the GDP deflator might not just be like, oh, yeah, it's because CPI is stupid. No, you could imagine scenarios It's because, yeah, maybe for some reason, consumer goods really are becoming relatively more expensive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The, you know, and it's not because capitalism doesn't work. You know, We as good Austro-libertarians could blame it on monetary policy. So, all right, I'm done with my little last-ditch effort to salvage my little toy model uh, from Gene Epstein's unfair aspersions. Well, what's? I'll, I'll give you the last word, Jonathan. What do you want to – Say before we close out this episode.
2: Uh, I, I would just uh, wrap up by saying, uh, just to go back to the big picture, uh, it's it's important, and just personally from my own experience, it's important to to have a critical eye towards uh, data presentation, especially especially if uh, the people who are showing you the data, showing you the chart, uh, have a story to tell and want you to come to a certain conclusion. Then you really do have to have to do what what you have done and and what uh, Gene has done, and and do the digging and see. Is, is this data actually telling the story that the people who are showing it to me claim that it does? Um, and so, you know, I guess big picture here, the takeaway is always always have a critical eye towards uh, the graphs that you see online.
1: Yes, well said. And I guess I, I said I'd give you the last word. Let me have the, the postscript. Uh, yeah, big picture. We're quibbling with Gene and some theoretical issues, but big picture is what EPI did with those two charts. That was naughty, They should go to the principal's office bad. Again, might not be the author of the second paper. Maybe that person, or if it's a team, I didn't check. Maybe they didn't know the context, but clearly institutionally, somebody or some group of people made that decision and naughty. Okay, thanks everybody for tuning in. Thank you, Jonathan, for your time as always. And we'll catch everybody next time.
0: Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org.